are now 90 miles from the nearest Starbucks. It feels like it. You are way, way out there. Um, but the men of the church uh, went up there, about 13 of us, I think it was, 12 or 13, uh, and for the last 24 hours have been up there doing work projects around the camp. It was a great time. Uh, relationships being made up there. Uh, I, there was a number of times at meals uh, where I heard one guy do a say to another guy, hey, I, I know we've met before, but what's your name again? These, this opportunity for guys to connect with one another that might not be in the same home group or might not sit at the same assigned table in the cafeteria. It's a good opportunity for those relationships to be formed and to help this camp prepare for the ministry that they are going to do all summer long. So thankful for, to have the chance to be up there together uh, as men this weekend. Um, Seth had me lifting rocks around, so I'm a little feeling it. I'm glad to be here. Um, a couple more things before we get started. Over here on the, uh, on the table, uh, we have a couple more of those Esther journals. We're going to be starting the book of Esther next week. If you have $3 to give a donation for that book, go ahead and do it. If you don't, go ahead and take it anyway. We want you to have one of those journals if you're going to be going through the book of Esther with us. Um, but today, one more time, before that break for the summer, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 1. Um, I didn't release the kids, did I? Kids, you are released. Did that happen? Josh did it. Okay. See, I told you, I'm not totally there this morning. All right. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 30. That's where we're going to be this morning. So we all have people in our lives that we admire, and because we admire them, we try to imitate them. And we do this in different ways and in different areas of, of our lives. I know for me, a big part of my life is music and art and creativity. And so for me, in the songs that I write and the songs that I play, the, the art that I do, I've got different heroes, people that I admire their work, and so I seek to imitate their work. One of these heroes for me is a guy named Ben Cooper. The thing I love about Ben Cooper isn't the fact that his music is the best or that his art is the best. I like it. The thing that I love about Ben Cooper is the way that he approaches his art, the way that he approaches creativity. For instance, I heard a story from him that one time when he was in high school, him and a friend locked themselves in their basement, and they said, we cannot leave the basement until we write five songs and record it on a four-track recorder. Now, obviously, the songs that they wrote in the basement, they weren't good music. The point was to have the joy of creating the music together. And I, I, I loved that. I, I admired that about them, that he would find joy in the process rather than thinking through every little detail of the songs that he and his friend were writing. I admired it, and so I imitated it. And you will never hear that music. <laughs> um, but it was a good exercise. It was, it was a joyful thing for me to do. I, I enjoyed the process of making that music. Uh, and at the same time, um, I grew through the process of doing it like that. We need to have heroes that we admire and that we seek to imitate. It's true for our passions and our hobbies, like music, art, for me. It was also true um, of walking with Christ. We know this. Uh, we, we call people who are a little bit ahead of us uh, in the walk with the Lord, we call them mentors or maybe people who are discipling us, people who are just a little bit further down the road and can say to us what Paul says to the church in Corinth. We'll put it up here on the screen. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Imitate, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We need these heroes, people we admire and people that we seek to imitate. And today we're in the book of Acts chapter 11. And in this passage, we see that Luke is actually zooming out from the story uh, that we have been in 
recently. He, he's, he pauses here to focus a little bit on what's happening in a bigger scale, what's happening in the church at large. He actually takes a big step back and zooms out all the way back to chapter uh, 7, which you're going to see pretty soon here. And we're going to focus in on the church uh, in the town of, of Antioch. And while no church is perfect, the church in Antioch should be somewhat of a, of a hero church for us. And what I mean by that is it's a church that we should admire and that we should therefore seek to imitate. There's four things about this church in Antioch that we're going to see as we go through this passage. Four things. First, it is a multi-ethnic church with diverse peoples. Second, it is a multiplying church growing larger. It is a maturing church growing deeper. And number four, it is a merciful church caring for those in need. Multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, merciful. I swear I didn't plan for all those to start with M's. It just happened that way. I was pretty excited about it. But these are four things that we shouldn't just see and admire about the church in Antioch. It's something that we should seek to imitate about the church in Antioch. And here's the thing. We cannot go through all that today. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. Rather than spending one week in Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through 30, what I'm going to do today is spend our first week in Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through 30. We're going to take a break for Esther. And then when we come back on the other side of Esther, we're going to spend two more weeks in this passage because there is too much to see too much to unpack, and uh, already for me, it's one of those bottomless passages. It's just impossible to get to the bottom of, so I'm excited to do that together with you. But first, let me read this passage for us. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. I'll read all the way through, and then I'll pray. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That's what we saw last week. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision parties criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And this is the story we saw last week in summary form. I'll read it for you. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unclean or common has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house at which we were sent, sorry, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved in all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God has gained the same gift, if God has gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? 
When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted the repentance that leads to life. And now he zooms out here, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that was all the way back in chapter 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, our friend. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met in the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down to Jerusalem to, from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, and merciful. Today, multi-ethnic. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need these heroes in our lives. In any area of our life, maybe it's our career or just any other area that we want to grow in. Maybe men who are further along in the path of fathering and husbanding than us. Maybe women who are farther, further along in the, in the world of being a wife and being a mother or whatever it might be. We need these people. But Father, we as a church, we need these examples as well. Father, we need churches that we can admire things about and that we can imitate. Father, I pray that Antioch, the church in Antioch would be that to us. Lord, a church that gives us a picture of what you call us to. And God, help us not only understand what's going on in this passage, but help us imitate what's going on in this passage to the degree that we are able. God, we need your spirit to do this work in us. We are dependent upon your spirit to move in us, to make us the one flesh that you call us to be. And so, Father, with the shortcomings of myself today as I come to preach this passage, I pray that you would wipe them away, that you'd give me the strength I need, Lord. For the people who are here today hearing this word preached, uh, digging into this passage together, I pray that you'd wipe away distractions, soften hearts, prepare us to understand what you have for us today. Don't let us leave as the same people we were when we got here. Lord, we pray that every week because we desperately mean it. Change us and grow us. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we know the passage. We know the story of what happened in Caesarea. We read about it last week. We see it summarized here again. But what happened there in Caesarea spread quickly. Word spread quick. Maybe it was just because the Jewish community was such a small, tight-knit community. One of the sins that easily flourishes in tight-knit communities is gossip, right? Word spreads quick. And so the church, or rather the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they catch wind of what happened in Caesarea, but they don't know the full story. 
All they know is that Peter was in the house of a Gentile eating with him. And they were upset about that. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, of course they were upset about that. They were upset about that because according to their knowledge, for as, as much as they knew, uh, Paul was just blatantly throwing away their law. He was breaking the law in their eyes. So Peter comes to them and he explains the fuller story. He explains the fuller story of what actually happened up there in Caesarea. He goes to them and he says, in the order of the events, that he saw a vision, a vision of unclean food. And then the Spirit comes and he sends him to go with unclean people, making no distinction. At Cornelius' house, he enters and he bears witness to the gospel. And he says in verse 15 that the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. There is a couple key words as we go through this. Words like no distinction. Words that like just as on us. He's emphasizing and highlighting the fact that the Holy Spirit is responding to the belief of the Gentiles just in the exact same way as the Holy Spirit responded to the faith of the Jewish community. No distinction. All the same. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. Because Peter concludes by saying, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in in God's way? And the Jews respond, verse 18, They say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The Gentiles are in, no distinction, all one, the same spirit, one flesh, one community, the church of Jesus Christ, plain and simple. Now, as we go on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that though it seems very plain and simple here, and though the Jews seem to accept it here, this is going to be a continual point of tension within this young church as we move on uh, through the book. That's not the focus of today. The focus of today is the fact that the unity is clear. The Holy Spirit has made it clear. There is no more distinction. Jew, Gentile, one in Jesus Christ. Now, that was a bit of a mad dash to verse 18, but now at this point, we're going to stop and zoom out. We're going to take this big step back, zoom all the way out to see the overarching picture of what's been happening in the church ever since chapter 7 when when Stephen was killed uh, in Jerusalem. This is what we read. I'm going to read it again, verse 19 through 24. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Walk faithfully with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And the thing that we have to see just right off the bat when we read this is just the breadth of this passage, the geographic and ethnic breadth of this passage. Just how many, how many towns, how many people groups are referenced here? Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, Cyrene, Cyprus, uh, Jerusalem, all these people. The, The church at this point has extended beyond just its small regional beginnings and has become an empire-wide faith, a faith that transcends people groups. 
And what we see here is that the the gospel wasn't only brought to Jews, it was also brought to Hellenists. And we know that the word Hellenist is used a little bit loosely. Back up in the church in Jerusalem, the word Hellenist was talking about Greek-speaking Jews. But the word itself, all it's really talking about is culturally Greek people. It seems from the context here that the Hellenists in this passage weren't Greek-speaking Jews, but Greek-speaking Gentiles. Why? Because it seems that the church had to send Barnabas to check it out, to tell for sure whether or not this was actually appropriate. If these were Jews, they wouldn't have had to do that. These are Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, worshiping the one true God together. Barnabas comes, and he gives it the thumbs up. He says, this is the, what God is doing. He is making one new people, both Jews and Gentiles, uniting them into one empire-spanning and soon-to-be world-spanning, diverse and diversifying faith. And nowhere is the diversity of the new people of God seen as clearly as in the church in Antioch, Jews and Greeks, forming one multi-ethnic church. Now, there is a, a movement in the church today to help the church grow to become more and more and more multi-ethnic uh, in nature. You know, it's been uh, said many times, I think it was originally said by Martin Luther King, that Sunday mornings are the most diverse, or not di- diverse, sorry, the most segregated hour of the week. Uh, the church has historically been incredibly homogeneous, uh, culturally, ethnically, racially. But there is this movement to try to create a more multi-ethnic church culture, multi-ethnic church communities. We see this through movements like the the Kainos Conference. It's It's a group of pastors of different races, different ethnicities who come together to fight for the building of the multi-ethnic church. Kainos in Greek means new. The new people of God represented from all people, every tribe, tongue, and language. In fact, even in our own denomination, the Evangelical Free Church in America, we have a director of multicultural ministries who at the district, at the very highest level, works with churches all around our denomination to try to build up a more multi-ethnic community in the churches of our denomination. Now, this move towards more multiculturalism and more multi-ethnic communities is happening at the same time as our culture as a whole is pushing more and increasingly so into celebrating Diversity. So the question I want to ask you as, as believers is, is simply this. Are the multi-ethnic churches simply riding the wave of our culture? Are they simply trying to be politically correct? Or are these multi-ethnic churches trying to be theologically robust? Are they simply trying to keep their hands clean in a politically correct culture? Or are they trying to be faithful to what God has called his church to be? That's an important question to ask. Because that's going to determine the way we respond when we see the move of the church to grow in further multi-ethnic directions. As we wrestle with that question, we're going to consider three categories. The first category is eschatological. That means last things. We're going to look forward, not just back to what the early church looks like, but forward to what the future church will look like. Secondly, we're going to consider the idea of harmony. And finally, we're going to consider the idea of security all through the word of God. So first, let's look at eschatology, the study of final things, looking forward to the end. Because we started by looking back, right? 
We started by looking back at the early church, seeing what the early church did. Now we need to look forward to see what God will do in the future. And we see that in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. We will put it right there. This is John's vision of the people of God at the end of time. And before I read this passage, I just want to remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what you're about to see in this passage is a worship service that you will be at. You're going to see this someday. This is a future worship service you will attend. Let's see what it has to say. Join me in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, that's you and me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell to their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might (laughs) be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I love that string of description words. This is the description of a future worship service we will be at. Praise God. But when we look at it, what do we see? Well, we see a great multitude. That's you and me. The great multitude is the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and language. Everyone who has ever repented and believed in Jesus Christ submitted to him as their Lord and as their Savior over their lives. The church is one family scattered throughout history and throughout time, right? That's what the universal church is. Every single believer adopted into one family. However, practically, it's kind of difficult to get every single believer in the world together in one place to worship together. Also, chronologically, it's kind of impossible for every believer throughout time to come together and worship together. It's impossible. So what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 7 is the first time the universal church has come together in one place since Acts chapter 2. That's beautiful. And when we look at this community, what do we see? We notice a couple things about it. Number one, we see that it's big. That's cool. A great multitude that no one can number. Number two, we see that it's worshiping, raising palm branches in in, in the air and crying out with loud voices. Number three, we see they're pure. That's symbolized by their white robes. But the fourth thing that we see here is that this group of people, this multi, is completely multi-ethnic. From every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Remember, John's writing this. What, What that tells us? is that as John looks out at this multitude, he doesn't see a lot of people who have become similar to one another. It shows that the people of the world are there. And John can look and he can still see with his eyes the diversity of the family of God. He can still hear with his ears the diverse languages spoken, apparently. I mean, he's talking about all languages being there. This is a diverse group of people. Skin of every shade of of color, languages from every corner of the globe, worshiping one God as one family. That's what we see in the future. And so what that means is that someday we are going to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to come to the day when we enter into the presence of the bridegroom. We're going to celebrate that day together, all of us, and with all other people from around the world. And when you come to... The rehearsal dinner, I know I'm getting a little bit 
creative here. We're not going to have a rehearsal dinner in the kingdom. I do not believe. But think about this in weddings today. Think about how much time the bride and the groom spend figuring out who's going to sit at wedding tables together. Like who's going to get along with each other? Who's going to, who knows each other? Well, let's put this family together with this other family. You know, they already know each other, their family, and they seem like they'll get along. And, or they, they, they went to the same church at some point in the past. But when you get to the kingdom of God, when you come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, who's going to be sitting around the rehearsal dinner table with you? Or the reception table with you? Who is it that's going to be in at your table? Because we're all part of one family. I just want to say that on that day, do not be surprised that if sitting around that table with you is a young German boy who died in the 1900s, a middle-aged Eastern, Middle Eastern man from the second century, a Nigerian woman who died in the 1900s, an old Chinese man who died in the 1600s, a, a middle-aged Midwestern woman who died in 1994, a crusty old Scotsman who died in 1700. And the Vietnamese woman who died in the 1800s. The point is, the people that we meet and that we worship with as family in the kingdom of God are going to be the most diverse, multi-ethnic group of people we could ever imagine. And we look back at the early church and we see a multi-ethnic church. And we look forward to the future. And what do we see? A multi-ethnic church. God tore down the walls back then. He will call us all together then. The United Arab Emirates is a, is a country of about, um, what is it, seven to eight million people. And this is remarkable. Of those seven to eight million people, 20% of the people in that country are from that country. That means 80% of the people in that country are coming in from somewhere else, speaking other languages, uh, having different cultures. And the biggest city in the United Arab Emirates is Abu Dhabi. We know that uh, in the UAE, it's 38% Indian, 10% Bangladeshi, 9% Pakistani, 10% Egyptian, 6% Filipino, 5% American. It's the United Nations coming together in, in one country. And there's a pastor that I know, uh, he pastored for 20 years on the south side of Boston, but just in the last few years, he moved to be the, become the pastor of the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi. Um, and I got on uh, their website this week to, to check out this church. What would this church be like in a place that is so incredibly diverse? And when you get on their website, you find pictures of this church. Not a lot, but a few. Pictures from the back, pictures from the front, looking out over the entire community. And what you see in this church is that there is no identifiable racial majority. You can't really tell what type of church this is. This isn't a white church or a black church. This seems to have every color of skin in the picture. And in fact, when you go to like the staff page and the pastor page, what you, what you see is that they've got staff and pastors from India, from South Africa, from the Philippines, from America. I would love to go to that church. I would love to visit that church because stepping into that church is going to be a little bit like stepping into heaven. Worshiping with such a diverse body of believers is able to give us a picture of heaven that no church in Alton will ever be able to actually give. We don't just see it at that church. We see it in other places around the world as well. I know Ben and Doreen Locke, they just came back from, uh, from, from YWAM base in Kona, Hawaii. And there, that is a community that is represented by 
dozens of different nations coming together to worship one true God. Why? Because they're all one family. I know for me, when, uh, right after I graduated from high school, I went and lived in England for six months. And uh, during that time, I, I shared a, a room for a couple months with a Nepali brother and a German brother. And the three of us would sit around uh, in the evening as we were falling asleep and struggle through language and enjoy the fact that though we hardly knew each other, though we hardly understood each other's culture, we were worshiping the same God. This is what God calls us to. I want to argue that ethnic diversity in the church isn't just something that's nice if we can get it. Rather, what it does is it gives us a picture of what the church truly is. It gives us a picture of the church from God's perspective. So I want to ask you this question again. Are these multicultural, multi-ethnic churches, are they being politically correct or are they being theologically robust? That's the eschatological thing to consider. But let's move on to consider the harmony principle, the, the harmony principle. I'm going to read from you, for you what Charlotte read just a moment ago. And I hardly need to explain it because she did such a good job. But I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 20. This is Paul writing here. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, oh, sorry, and all, let me start over. For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not and I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the, the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, important words, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You know, usually when we come to this passage, we use it to apply to spiritual gifts, and well, we should, right? God does gift all of us distinctly and uniquely to use our gifts for the kingdom of God, for the good of the church, for the furthering of the gospel. But the thing we have to notice here, right here in verse 13, is that Paul goes out of his way to not exclude ethnic and class diversity. He says Jews or Greeks, slave or free. He uses the same rationale to talk about a multicultural church even across classes, such as slave and free. And we see that this is not an accident. This is just not the way it worked out. Verse 18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. The diversity of the universal church, it is not an accident. It was an intentional work of God. We see that all the way back at the beginning. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He saw that last week. He created his diverse community here in Antioch. And one day... As we just saw a moment ago, he's going to gather his diverse family together again. We'll very often talk about this beauty in diversity by talking about a mosaic, right? Different colored tiles coming together to make one unified picture. We're going to talk about it like an orchestra. I've been listening to George Gershwin a lot recently, the American composer, and the way uh, he 
puts different musical instruments together to make his orchestra is beautiful. But if he used only saxophones, I would not listen. It would be buzzy. If I listened to, if he only used violins, I wouldn't listen because it would be screechy. If he used only percussion, I would not listen. It would be a racket. But as it is, it is beautiful. Not despite the diversity, but because of the diversity. The fact that the different instruments work together, what we see is that the beauty of this diversity works to make instruments in harmony. Different tones, one song. Better off together than on their own. Better off different than all the same. And so it is with the church. And that's the way our composer orchestrated it. He wants us different for our good and for his glory. And one day every tribe, tongue, and nation will mingle their voices in one diverse, harmonious song of praise. And so I ask you again, are these multi-ethnic churches, this multi-ethnic impulse is it just christians being politically correct or are they being theologically robust are they buying into the message of our culture or are they trying to be faithful to the culture that god has tried to build in his church so first eschatology second harmony third security and i'll be a little bit quicker here i'm going to go back to read first corinthians chapter 12 verse 17 again just that one verse if the whole body were an eye where would this be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? What this is getting at is that not only are we stronger because of diversity, but we are not weaker <laughs> because of diversity. This is a security measure for us as well. The church is limited when we have a lack of diversity in some way. I'll give you an example. Very often, Olivia, or uh, very often, I'll be in in a a room with a a couple guys trying to organize something for our church, and we're getting excited about it. We see this has great potential uh, for the building relationships or growing the body uh, together. And I'll come home to Olivia, and I'll I'll share with her my really exciting idea, and she'll say to me, "Oh, great! Um, What's happening with childcare?" That's right. That's right. Childcare. The reality is, I, I, when I think about what our church should do, or I just think about it through my guy lenses. I don't initially think about childcare. My wife initially thinks about childcare, and I, if my wife wasn't a part of this church, we would be limited. Let me make it broader. If the women weren't a part of a church, a Church of men would be limited, very limited, and vice versa. And this isn't just true in, in gender diversity, it's actually true in other ways as well. I think we get the point. When brothers and sisters of diverse age and race and class and heritage and nationality worship and study and serve together, each of them bring their own unique strengths and insights and perspectives and lenses, and they fill each other's gaps. They protect us, we, we, we protect one another from having tunnel vision and missing wisdom. So the question again, are these multicultural churches being politically correct or are they being theologically robust? Are they following the tide of culture or are they trying to seek the heart of God? And here's my answer. The answer that I believe is biblical. 
a multi-ethnic diversity in the church is not something that must be tolerated, but celebrated and desired. Not for political correct reasons, but for theological reasons. It displays who the church truly is to the world. It shows how God has made us. God, it shows us that when God made us a multi-ethnic worldwide community from every tribe, tongue, and language, that was not an accident, that he divinely orchestrated that from the beginning, and he will do it all the way to the end. It harmonizes our diverse strengths, and it supplements our unique weaknesses. But here's the problem. No church in Alton, New Hampshire will ever look like the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi. Never will I stand up here on a Sunday morning and look out and see every tribe, tongue, and nation represented. And part of this just means like, well, so be it. We are where we are. Our church will, by necessity, hopefully, reflect the, where we live. It's a little bit difficult for us to wrestle through this, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't do anything about it. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we as a church should not remember that we have lenses on as predominantly white people who live in New Hampshire. Alton is 98.4% white, and 2.8% of our population has been born outside of the country. That means that we have a very limited perspective And so what can we do? What can we do in order to be a part of this worldwide orchestra, this beautiful mosaic that God calls all of us to be a part of? Of course, the best thing that we could do is to go and travel to other places, but that's kind of a big, hard thing to do. If we do it, it's not something that we can do all that often. We can go to other places, and we can, uh, we can even go to places like Boston or, or Portland and worship with an immigrant church. We can go overseas on mission trips. We can go up to Quebec, the closest place that is distinctly uh, different culturally from us. We can do those things, but the thing that I want to ask together this morning is what can we do even now today in Alton? Without leaving the borders of our town, how can we engage the beautiful mosaic that we are a part of? I've got three things I want to encourage you in. The first is this. Drink broadly. Drink broadly. And we have brothers and sisters all around the world, all around the country from different cultures, nations, tribes, languages. And there are people around the world who are teaching the Word of God, who are are writing books, who have podcasts, Look for these books. Look for these podcasts. Listen to these sermons. Hear the word of God expounded in their language, in their, or in their, uh, in their, from their culture, it, from their, from their, in their language if you would like, but from their cultural perspective. Allow their distinct lenses to color your worldview. And not just sermons, not just Christian things. Listen to other brothers and sisters speak about the world. Draw from them. And there's a lot of places I could point you to to look for this, but I'm going to point you just to one, uh, one that for me has been really helpful over the last uh, couple years, uh, and that is the Gospel Coalition's website that has different branches in different countries around the world. So if you go to the Gospel Coalition's website, you can click and go over to the Africa branch of the Gospel Coalition's website. And what this is, it's all in English, and they're writing from a distinctly African perspective for a distinctly African audience. 
And what's amazing, recently I was, I was on the website and there were articles um, about polygamy. And, you know, for us, when we think about polygamy, we think about polygamy as, you know, an ancient moral issue, something that the, was an issue in the Old Testament and we have to figure out how to read those passages. But for people in Africa, that's not the case. This is a real-life issue, something that they, pastors and, and church leaders, have to wrestle with. It's helpful to learn from that. Because in March of this year, in the New Yorker, there was an article celebrating the growth of the polygamy movement in America. This is something that's happening in our country. Polyamory and polygamy is happening in our country. So, we need our African brothers. We need our African sisters. We need the broader body of Christ to help us wrestle with questions. How do we respond to this? How do we respond when somebody comes to faith who is married to two other people? That's an extreme example, but it's true in a million other smaller ways as well. We need their unique cultural lenses to help us get a broader perspective of God's word and living as God's people in the world. So that's number one, drink broadly. We have the internet now. That helps. All right, number two, seek diversity of other kinds. Seek diversity of other kinds. Racial, um, multi-ethnic diversity is something that's harder for us to find in Alton, but we can seek diversity of other kinds. We can seek generational diversity. We can seek gender diversity. We can seek cultural diversity, even amongst the same American people. (laughs) For instance, boomers. How many relationships do you have with millennials? And how deep do you get with millennials? And vice versa, if you're a millennial, if you are part of my generation, how many deep relationships do you have with boomers? Do you think that a millennial boomers would be able to offer you a unique perspective of the Christian life? Millennials, do you think that boomers would be able to fill some of the gaps in your understanding of what it means to follow the Lord today? My challenge for you is this. It's simple, but it's actually a little bit radical. This is, boomers, I I dare you to invite a millennial couple over for dinner, to to ask them about what it looks like for them to follow Christ today in this culture. Millennials, I, I dare you to do the same. And for all of us, no matter what generation we are, I'd encourage you to read a book that's 100 years old. Books sermons, things from a hundred years ago will offer you a radically different picture of truth than anything you're going to get from me today. Why? Because I live here and now. Read outside of your generation. Listen outside of your generation. Seek generational diversity. Other thing, seek a background diversity. Because the reality is when we look at our church, though many of us look very similar, though many of us are from the same ethnic backgrounds, all of us have very radically different stories, and that can be a good thing too. Some of us grew up uh, more wealthy and are now less wealthy. Some of us are the other way around. Some of us had hard upbringing. Some of us had really rich upbringing. Some of us never even heard the name of Jesus before our 40s. Others of us heard it in the crib. I want to challenge you, be free. Join a home group of people who are different than you. Intentionally invite people from our church over to your house who are very different from you. Learn from them. Hear their stories. Hear what it's like for them to follow Jesus. You will grow, and they will too, from you. That's number two. 
My third encouragement for you before we leave is this. To pray for the global church. To pray for the global church. The reality is believers in other parts of the world, in other countries, other cultures in our country, we're all a part of the same body. Their suffering matters to us. Their blind spots and sin matters to us and ours to them. Their health, their growth, it matters to us because they are our brothers and they are our sisters. And if you fell down and one of your arms fell into the fire, would you not go and rescue it? If you knew that your brother, your sister was suffering, would you not pray for them? And so I want to encourage you, look for these resources, things like Voice of the Martyrs, like Operation World. Again, that, that prayer guide I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, the Gospel Coalition put out that shares story after story after story of what is happening around the world. There are so many things like this online. Find these resources and pray for your brothers and sisters around the world because if prayer works, that is a powerful thing to do for the body of Christ, your brothers and your sisters. So that's my encouragement for you. Be free. We are not a church that should not just tolerate diversity, but celebrate diversity. And to the degree we're able, seek diversity for our good and the good of our brothers and our sisters. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so blessed. We are so... um, in awe of the fact, God, that we are a part of this one unified body. And God, the thing that unites us isn't uh, similar interests. It's not similar backgrounds. It's not the fact that we're comfortable together. What unites us, Lord, is the fact that we are all made alive in you, united in you, part of the same bodies, part of the same community, family. Father, I, I pray that you would help us Celebrate the diversity of our here, our local church family. Diversity of backgrounds, diversity of perspectives. Grow us through that, Lord. But I also pray, Lord, that the truth uh, of, of the universal body of Christ would continually shape who we are. That you would even give us opportunities, Lord, to push outside of the borders of Alton into the world. God, allow us, help us benefit from the diversity of the church. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. One of the most profound things that we can do, as Charlotte mentioned before the service today, together is communion. Because as we do communion, we're not just celebrating the communion that we share with God. We're also sharing the communion that we share with one another. We, the united body of Christ, celebrating one meal in the worship of the one true God. And as we do this meal, what we are doing as one is we are remembering what happened on the cross. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he is victorious over sin and over death, that he ascended into heaven and is reigning over the world today. We are remembering that and we are celebrating that. Not as strangers, but as brothers and sisters. So I want to encourage you, go ahead, open up the communion elements. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you are invited to join this, uh, this meal with us. This is for anybody who calls Jesus Lord, whether you're white or black, 
American or from another country, no matter what language you speak, no matter what Christian heritage you come from. If Jesus is your Lord, you, will, you can join us uh, for this meal. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I ask that you not join us uh, for this meal today. This is something for the body of Christ to do together, for the family of God. However, if you would like, if the Lord is leading, if he is working in you, pulling you and drawing you to trust in him, how beautiful would it be if the first thing that you did as a follower of Jesus Christ was join the universal body of Christ to celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection? So trust in him. Surrender to him. And he will wash you clean and bring you into the united body.